So good morning, everyone. And we are here again on the Jesuit Institute Hour. And with me this morning, I have Father Anthony Egan and Puleng Matsuneng. Now, Anthony quite often joins us on the show and he talks about all sorts of things. But what most of you may not know is that he actually has a doctorate in South African struggle history. And so given that we were celebrating uh, Sharpful Day this week on the 21st, we thought it might be interesting just to talk a little bit about Sharpful, both about what was going on historically at the time and then also about Sharpful today and what might be our concerns and our thoughts about Sharpful at this point in our history. So, Anthony, do you want to start by just giving us a sense of what happened on Sharpful Day and why was it significant? The basic bottom line was around the time of Sharpful Day, there was there had been a series of protests, past law burnings. In the old days, remember, blacks were required to carry passes. And there was a protest initiated by the Pan-Africanist Congress, which was one of the smaller movements in the 1950s, broke away from the ANC at about 56. And they had organized these burnings of the passes, which was an illegal act. And then people would hand themselves over to the police saying, I've destroyed my pass, please arrest me. And what happened effectively on that day was a large crowd of people arrived who said, we're throwing in our passes, we've had enough, you can arrest us. Now, you can imagine a few hundred people arriving at a police station, literally, politely sort of throwing away their passes and saying, now, please arrest us. And during that sort of standoff, because it was a standoff, they were standing outside, the police were standing at the, at the, at the police station, they were armed and they were watching and saying, what do we do next? Something went wrong and nobody, none of the historians I've, I've spoken to or whose work I've read can actually say what happened. There are a number of different theories of what happened. Anyway, the cops started shooting and the crowd broke and dispersed. And 69 people were killed and a few hundred were wounded in this incident. At which point then the country went into a state of crisis. I think it was the first real political crisis of the South African state after the 1948 elections, a real crisis. Because the protests expanded across the country to places like Cape Town, there were at the same time things happening, for example, in the rural areas of the Transkei in Mpondoland, where there was an actual revolt going on, a, a rebellion led by traditional leaders against the government at the time. And for a while, if you look at the contemporary newspaper reports, both international and local, there is a sense, is the country about to collapse? Is the government about to fall? What's going to happen next? And what ultimately happened was, of course, that the government under Furwood declared a state of emergency and essentially arrested all the leaders of all the opposition parties and movements. That's the basic background to the story. Right, that's the basic background. So this was critical in that it was really one of the first moments of big protest that elicited a huge response from the from the government. I mean, they, they, they killed the people who protested, or many of them. Yes. Well, I mean, there had been big protests before. I mean, in 1952, there'd been the defiance campaign, mm -hmm. similar kind of model. But it wasn't as sort of powerful a moment. There were a whole series of moments where people were arrested and charged, where people marched, where in some cases what happened essentially was the police were told, just let them walk. And as long as nothing goes wrong, just let them go home. 
and then they would go and arrest leaders and things like that. But, but that was a totally different dynamic. That was in the 50s. Up until 1960, I think after 1960, uh, under under John Foster, who was then by that stage the Minister of Police, the gloves came off and they said, we are not going to mess around. We are going to sort of hit hard, hit fast, and we're not going to tolerate any resistance. And so by 1961, all the main political parties and movements of the opposition, ANC, PAC, groups like that, were banned. Um, Groups like the Congress of Democrats would disappear in 1963. Indian Congress continued, strangely enough. Coloured people's organisation, mostly in the Western Cape, they they sort of slowly died out, although I think they were finally banned somewhere in the mid-60s. The nascent trade union movement of the 1950s, which later was, was sort of re- revived in exile, which didn't really help it because it didn't have any kind of grassroots support, that they too were essentially squashed. So in a sense, Sharpville was a turning point because it actually moved the government from kind of what I would say low-level low toleration of some resistance with picking off leaders, for example, charging them with treason, 156 of them in 1956, to literally we will stand on anything that steps out of line. And really sort of the clamp down that that was the 1960s and carried on into the 70s, up to 76, really. Okay. Puleng, I want to turn our focus a little bit from Sharpville as it was uh, then, and it's, it's the key part it played in our history, to a sense of how people today, 20 years after apartheid, 20 years after the 21st of March has been declared as Sharpville Day, the, the sense of it as a public holiday... Um, to how you think people in Sharpville on the ground now experience the public holiday and what does it mean for them? I think there's a lot of pain for many people, especially those who were at or on the day when the shuffle happened. Um, Sharpville people have a thing that um, the government didn't take them seriously. They actually lost what they thought would be a holiday called the Sharpville Day, which is um, Human Rights Day. Um, There's very, I would say there's very little said about them, even within the looking at Gauteng. So it's it's something there in Sharpville, and it doesn't include everyone in this country. Um, They wish if their story could be shared more. Unfortunately, it's not shared. Um, There is no hope that it will change. It's really Human Rights Day and very little is said about them, Um, hardly recognized. So something strange is going on here where a a memorial of a massacre of Sharpville Day translates into a new holiday, Human Rights Day. In a way, we're remembering, we're supposed to be remembering Sharpville Day, but I'm kind of struck, Anthony, that you said was that the Sharpville protest was organized by the PAC and my, my sort of, my sense of what happens when a major turning point in struggle history is kind of subverted, if you like. That's what I'm hearing from Poleng saying, that there's, there's, a, there's something about remembering but also about forgetting that's going on. I wonder if you could tease out some of what you think might be happening, Anthony. Mm. Well, I think, you know, when you do something like create a memorial, you can read it in two ways. A generous interpretation would be to say 
we must remember it in a sense that it appeals to the widest common denominator of people. So rather than see it as a PAC protest that went horribly wrong, that people were murdered, and that then led to essentially the crackdown and the, and the beginning of the armed struggle that happened you know, within a year of, of, of uh, Sharpeville, what we do is we create something that can appeal to everybody. So something that in theory everyone will appreciate, human rights. On the other hand, the question must remain, what do you do when you are memorializing an event which was absolutely crucial in a country's history, but in which the victors had little or no influence? The PAC are the Cinderella of the struggle. I mean, they, were, they grew dramatically in the late 1950s, but they imploded basically by the end of the 60s. And so what happened was you have a movement that no longer has a really strong political voice in South Africa any longer. There are a remnant of the PAC still around, but, I mean, compared to what they would have been in 1961, I mean, they, they just don't figure in the same league. They have been eclipsed. One might say their historical moment passed. And, of course, when it comes to this project called nation building. You know, you obviously want to create a nation that on one hand represents a kind of broad, united image. On the other hand, of course, those who are in power in any kind of uh, country or environment will always try and tailor the history to serve the dominant narrative. So, you know, you can have reminiscences of Sharpeville where people don't even mention the fact that it was the PAC and not the ANC that led those protests. Mm. And it's convenient, shall we say, to forget that not everything in the struggle, not all the great events of of the sort of struggle for democracy in South Africa uh, were, were not led by the party that won out eventually. And you know, it's the same way in which in some ways I think the, the black consciousness movement pulling has been mm. airbrushed out or has been uh, relegated to footnotes. And if you think about it, the BC movement in the late 60s, early 70s, up until its suppression in 78, 77, 78, was actually the main player in South Africa. And they were doing serious things. And they were the ones who helped to recreate the trade union movement that became one of the key players in the internal opposition, internal struggle in the 70s, 80s, and leading into the 90s. They were the ones who mobilized youth, which created the sort of the revived youth organizations in the 80s, which became the kind of young lions of the struggle. Admittedly, by the March 78, many of those folks in the, in the black consciousness movement had moved over to the ANC, and a lot of the leadership had gone into exile. And those who had gone into exile mostly had gone into the ANC. But we forget Biko and the black consciousness movement with, at our peril because we're actually airbrushing out a whole history that I think shows the complexity and diversity of this country's history and its people. And I think that, mm. that for me is a, as a historian is interesting and as a cynical person raises eyebrows. I think it is the people as... Um Anthony saying that the people are important, the people died. And it was as early as in the 80s. I remember my father showing me pictures of people who had died in Shaville. Um, 
so that was as early as that time that um, this area had been forgotten, that they participated in saying, we don't want these laws. Um, so it was as early as then. So by 1994, I think they were already forgotten um, that there were people who died for our freedom and people who wanted to know or who wanted this country to be a better place. Um, so, yeah, that's the sad side of, you know, the early, us forgetting it as early as those days, as in the 80s, seeing the pictures. Yeah. There's something really here about about the importance of the role of memory and the importance of remembering the actual history that we come from. I'm, I've been very struck recently myself in the work I've done with some young adults, kind of in their early 20s, by the, the paucity of their knowledge of the struggle, that that you can mention kind of key struggle movements like the Black Sash or the PAC, and it's as if they only have heard about the ANC or, or they have no sense of, I mean, I remember being with a group and I was trying to talk about the nature of evil and I talked about Favut and they didn't know who Favut was. Mm. They'd heard of apartheid, but they hadn't heard of grand apartheid. You know, there, was, there was a real paucity of knowledge. And I think, I think we have an important role to play as the church in, in helping people to remember that some of our religious activity, if we think of just the Mass, the Mass, in a way, is, a, is an activity of remembering. We're remembering the Last Supper. And if we go back into the Jewish tradition, that whole, that whole emphasis in Judeo-Christian uh, thinking of not forgetting those who've gone before us, not forgetting those whose lives have shaped our current reality. I think there's a really, there's both a, a good, there are good sociological and historical reasons for doing this, but I think we've got a, a kind of a spiritual need to know where we come from. I wonder what the two of you think, maybe pulling. Um, I think knowing and living in the township, um, younger people who, I would say, who came after me, had a thing that they really don't want to hear about the effects of apartheid and what it had done to people. And they didn't just want to look at the pain that went, you know, in, in their families, maybe, some of them. Um, so it's the question of um, them not wanting to look at the pain, I think. That's one other thing that I am thinking is happening in, for them. Um, and they said, and they always say they want to make their own history. So it could be Twitter, we don't know, or Facebook. Maybe that's their own history that they want to make. Anthony. When you say people want to make their own history, I thoroughly agree with you, of course. But I also remember that old saying, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Oh, yes, it's true. And I think that's, that's one of the things we forget at our peril. Because if we forget the past, we often end up acting in such a way that it's actually mirroring what's happened before and we start heading in the same direction. But it's, it's you know, sometimes when they say that, I... It goes back to me. My father was detained hmm. um, in the 60s, and he was at, which is, I think it's called Johannesburg Prison now. Hmm. It was called John Foster, I think, then. Hmm. And he said, I was in the 10th floor, and they were about to throw me out of the window, and I don't know what happened. By the grace of God, they stopped, and they sent me into detention. 
So I remember my father repeating those stories for us, and also the Shaville, you know, massacre. And I would want to block my ears and would not want to listen to what my father was saying. But it was the history happening. Um, because until 94, there was still, or before 94, there was still apartheid, and I was, you know, part of the system. It was happening. So some things I had to open myself and... Um, whether to use the word let go, as Ignatius would say, and be open to what he was telling me. Um, So I just can imagine with those who came after 1994, listening to maybe us now saying, I I was detained and this what happened, or this what's happened to me. Ah, you know, but I, I get what you say. I get what you're saying, Anthony. Yeah, you know, the thing was, for me in the 80s, I mean, it was the study of history that forced me to look at reality more clearly. And saying, no, actually, what they've been telling us in our history books have been lies. It's true. I mean, I I remember the first thing that radicalized me was back in 76, when I heard all these rumors about, you know, imminent massacre of white people in, in, you know, in the uprising. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, I was caught up in this. I was 10 years old. I didn't know what the hell was going on. And then a few months later, when it all died down, and I looked at it, I thought, hang on, there, there's something more going on that they've not been telling us. Mm. And by, by, by within a year, when I was starting to piece together the real story, I concluded the government were liars, and that put me on the path of opposition. True. So in a sense, by denying the stories, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried. I mean, yes, it's painful to remember that stuff. Yeah. And it can be paralyzing. And it can also lead us into all kinds of ways of thinking that, you know, we can only operate in this manner because this is how we've done it in the past. And that's also wrong. But, I mean, to really to understand the story, we have to to then build upon it. And I think, that, yeah, I think I that's what you're saying as well. Mm. And I think that's what we try and do. I with. think that the sad, the sad history in this country was having two histories. You know, the history mm. of the of the movement... Um, and also the history of the education in schools. Mm. Because I remember my, when I was doing history in Stanley 3, there was this story about Uno Ngawuza, uh who had dreamt and told the king to kill all the cows. Yeah. You know, somewhere in the Eastern Cape. It was Yeah. Mm. And those cows were killed and they had no cows. It just doesn't make sense, you know. Mm. You... <laughs> Whether 11 years old, I was doing my sanitary and listening to this story, you know, going home and parents are saying, no, that's not true history. Mm. You know, Mm. oh, Mm. this is South Mm. Africa. I can remember, I mean, you you kind of talk about the, the fight over history. And I can remember being at school in the 80s and history workshop at WITS were producing these, uh, not well printed, kind of put together history books and we were learning from them. We were at a Catholic school and so we were using history workshop stuff and Luli Kalinikos had written Golden Workers and I can remember I was reading through this and then meeting friends, white friends who were at state schools and they were doing the Great Trek for the fourth or fifth time um, and and their notion of his, these two histories were completely radically different. Mm-hmm. There was the sense that 
that Golden Workers was very much about why apartheid existed and why the laws existed in order to create cheap labor for the mines. That's the, the kind of the, you know, apartheid existed in order to fuel the mining industry. That's what it did. Um, and I can remember that being really hammered home by our, our teachers at school and, and the sense of these multiple histories, just what you're saying, Pauline, that there were these multiple different histories being taught at different schools that had no interaction with each other. And, and the beginnings of, well, what is the truth? How do we begin to discern the truth? Where, where does the truth lie in these different stories, in these different narratives? And when I think about where I am now as an adult and the kind of work I do, my interest in helping people to discover the truth of their own stories, because mm. if I were just to put on my spiritual director hat for a moment, you know, there are national narratives that are true and there are national narratives that are false and that, well, there are more true and less true, maybe, national narratives. And the truth of an individual's experience lies somewhere in there. And the same is true of our personal histories, mm. that mm. there are family stories that mm. sometimes shroud the truth. And true freedom comes in when we discover our own truth, the truth of our own upbringing, our own history, our own roots. Painful though that often is to discover, we cannot be really free until we face the demons in our own closets. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think it's it's true also when we look at it on a broader scale, for example, religion and religious history, mm. because so often when you look at the history of all religious traditions, there are deliberate distortions, manipulations and everything else that go on. I mean, for example, I mean, I just use an example outside of the Christian tradition of the concept of jihad. Jihad is not about going to war. It's the war within yourself in order to attain that sort of spiritual strength and being centered on God. There's a minor jihad, which is actually defending the faith against enemies attacking you. And, and that's only a secondary thing. Same thing within the Christian tradition. If we look at our, our, our Christian traditions, the way in which some things which are peripheral to, to the actual life of faith suddenly become the kind of center of attention and people become so obsessed with these things that they actually miss the main stuff. Yeah. So, perhaps as a kind of closing down moment, what's striking me is that as we come up to these big memorial moments in our annual year, March 21st is definitely one of them, to see them as an opportunity for for spending time maybe with those who were alive at the time, for, for going back to our elders while we still have them alive. There will come a time when there is no one left who was alive, who was there at the time, but for engaging with history, even though it may be painful. And maybe that's why we have the space of a day off to do it. Pulling thoughts? I think my thoughts about, especially a place like Chaville, um, quite different from Soweto. Um, I think if we begin to commercialize or commercialize these places, um, Soweto won its title because the commercialization is going well. Um, maybe because Chauvel's commercialization didn't go well and we seem to forget about it. Um, but I really, what you're saying, you know, encourage us, those who are still around and those who were there to talk more about what happened in Chauvel and just to talk about their people who lost their lives you know, um, hoping for democracy. 
that their lives matter. Mm. I would actually add to that, if I may use a sort of slightly sort of catchy slogan, one person, one tape recorder. I truly believe that the younger generation today need to go and talk to the grannies and grandpas, the people who lived through these events, whether it's Sharpful, whether it's the 76 Uprising, all those other events, with a tape recorder and ask them to tell their stories. And if we could get together a database of these interviews, I mean, we would have such an amazing oral history of South Africa that we could really sort of move beyond the kind of glitz and glamour, the what I call the heritage role of history, which makes it all look very pretty and, and packaged for tourists and turn it into a real gritty history that would that would represent the you know a, a certain approximation of the truth. Right. So preparation for June sixteen, learn how to use the tape recorder function on your cell phone. For those of you who are too young to know what a tape recorder is, it's it's the um the thing where you can record what people are saying. So, thank you. You've been listening to the Jesuit Institute Hour here on Radio Veritas. We've been talking to Father Anthony Egan and to Poleng Matsuneng, and we've been talking about the celebration of uh, Human Rights Day, which was formerly, of course, Sharpful Day. <laughs>